welcome to the Book of the Door podcast where we discuss foreign fiction of the Zelda series of video games. I'm your host, Crystal, and with me is Monica. Hello. And Cameron. Hi. Today we're here to discuss the 22nd canonical Zelda game, uh, Bloodborne, The Real Dark Souls 2. Ah. Uh... Yeah, 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 yeah. Cameron, you played through Bloodborne recently? Yeah, I did. I, I played through Bloodborne and I was uh, trying to get the platinum trophy in Bloodborne until my PS4 crashed in the middle of me running around in a chalice dungeon and the save was corrupted. Damn, the real Bloodborne starts here. The real Bloodborne <laughs> starts here with nothing. Well, the good thing about that is we moved on to Hades. Yeah, and then after that I played Hollow Knight. Really, it was it was a decent thing to get me started on playing other things, I suppose. But yes, we did play Bloodborne quite recently. Now, Bloodborne is, of course, the one fourth demon souls game would that make it the fifth kingsfield no kingsfield is different that's not that's not the same that's a different oh. thing oh okay i'm sorry kingsfield is a first person game that makes it a different thing that does make it different it's like comparing etrian odyssey to dragon quest but they made demon souls on the playstation 3 and then everyone who didn't have a ps3 got into the dark souls and then they made dark souls 2 the best of the trilogy but some people didn't like it so then they made the real dark souls 2 bloodborne I'm going to dissent on the best of the trilogy bit, just so that's not the official position of the Book of Medora, but I respect your opinion on it. And like all of the Demon Souls games, this one has a bit of a bit of a you know tough to understand story at times. You have to you really read the items, take notes, do your analysis, and guess what we do? We that's pretty much all that we do. That is all that we do. We we are a podcast that is specifically built to be able to talk about dark souls or sorry to talk about demon souls games the demon souls games you could consider an alternate route that zelda could have taken especially the first dark souls which has dlc that's basically just a zelda game heritorius is a pretty zelda-like character and so is manis and ulisil is just hyrule like a twilight yeah i mean it's a kingdom of light that darkness overcomes, and then a brave knight goes to fight it. It's just like Ulysseel is what would happen if a Zelda game went bad, and then a zombie had to save the day. Dark Souls 2 also kind of like a Zelda game, because antiquity stretches into infinity. There was always yeah. another kingdom buried under the kingdom. Yeah. Interestingly, there's a little bit of that in Bloodborne, too. A bit of that in Bloodborne, also. Which is doubly interesting, given the way that this setting works. I'm actually wondering what would be the best way to handle this, because, like, if we talk about the lore of the Bloodborne setting in the order that the player discovers it, it would be very disorienting for our listeners. I think we need to do it, like, from the top historically, like we usually do with Book of Medora. Right. Chronological order. Here's Bloodborne explains. Okay. I guess that does make a certain amount of sense. In the beginning, there <laughs> yeah, was okay, God. Cool. Yeah, okay, yeah, there's something. Is there a God in this setting? Yeah, there's several of them. How would you describe them? Uh, you could describe them as beings of uh, cosmic horror, uh, eldritch mm-hmm. entities uh, beyond man's ken. Each of those does make sense, yes. And they they have the ability to, I guess create their own universes at least from man's perception which are called dreams in man's Mm -hmm. perception yes also they might be little slugs 
they're little they're all little sea life guys because the sea is big and old and you don't know what's in it and there's per- i think that like my favorite bit of lore in the entire game is when you find the pearl slugs that are the sign that the great old ones are around and it's like no one knows what these slugs are but they're there and they're slugs and they seem to be full of stars they're very cute they're like the cutest thing in the game yeah and I, I remember you bringing this up, Crystal, and that you thought that the truth of any of the old ones is that the real old ones are the little slugs or the plankton or whatever small bug-like creatures are around when you're dealing with these strange elder god figures. The little planktons? Did I say that? The little parasites that are on cause. Oh, yes. I do think the little cause parasites are cause. Okay. So what is big pr- cause? Uh, a colony of cause parasites. So I'd I'd like to put forward my suggestion here, which is that these creatures that everyone is trying to turn into and is trying to ascend to be a higher level of are just like little little slimy bug things that are kind of cute and they wiggle around and don't do much besides that. So in the beginning, there are a bunch of really cute slugs. Yeah. What happens afterward, Crystal? Well, some people in a little fishing... Well, no. Even before, hmm. There's so much layered history here. So, yeah, and so much layers. Uh, the the top layer. Uh, well, it's the top layers in the Chalice Dungeons. Yeah, the ch- the Chalice Dungeons are probably the easiest place to start for our listeners. The Chalice Dungeons are set in the crypts beneath the city in which Bloodborne takes place. They are sort of a historical record of kingdoms that rose and fell long before the age of Bloodborne proper. And they're interesting in that they describe many of the same conflicts that dis- that frame the current history of Bloodborne. And we can see how badly things might turn out in this setting by looking to the past. I think that all the great old ones that we actually see in the setting, excluding like Outside of the bugs, what the people in Bloodborne think of as the old ones or the great ones were actually originally humans. Now, why Uh do you say that? Well, there's a few reasons for it. Um, Take Kaz, for example. Kaz is the mother goddess of a fishing village. A great... Well, she's very much an inhuman creature, except for the fact that if you see... Her from a certain angle, you can see that she has an extremely human face. And this is something that's repeated in the physiology of pretty much all of the Great Ones. You look at the Moon Presence, who we'll get to later, and its entire body is built around a human spinal cord. You look at the One Reborn, and it's literally made up of human bodies. You look at Rom and its physiology outside of perhaps its face isn't very human, but it is described by Mikolash, a scholar, as having been transformed into its current state by cause. It seems to me that pretty much everything we think of as being a great one in this setting, including possibly all the giant spider peoples, were originally human. Right. This is why I said I thought Kos was the parasite because I I do not I did not interpret the human body inside Kos as being part of Kos, but more the host of the Kos parasite. Oh, that would make sense. And you do get a little Kos parasite. Yeah, you're the you, new host. 
I, I suppose so. But you can like squeeze it and make it do magic. That's where all the magic in this game comes from, is you get little tiny great ones and you squeeze them and they do destructive magic. Right, that's why people like the great ones, because you can squeeze them and do magic. But then, uh, you know, you do some magic and before you know, you're a big cause parasite colony. I think that they retain some part of themselves, at least. Like, the relationship that Cause has with the fishing village implies that if not the human that she used to be, then the intelligence that she represents now is certainly capable of taking care of the people around her. Yeah, everyone in the fishing village that Rom washed up in likes Rom. Yeah. So are they benevolent? Only as much as the people that were originally them. The, that I cause mean, they, washed up in, not Rom. Yeah, Rom, Rom's a different case. We'll talk about Rom a little bit later. Rom's a little. Rom might have been a might have been a real jerk in their former life. There's a lot of characters in this game where it's like, oh, it's so sad, like in Dark Souls, and it's like, no, no, everyone in this setting is pretty much a jerk to one degree or another. So, what's the first civilization we know of? The Tumerians, right? Well, there's there's three there's three major civilizations who are described in the tombs beneath. Bloodborne City. What's the name of the city? Yarnum. Yarnum. Lordy, lordy. And they're beneath the city of Yarnum. There is the Tumerians, who are sort of like the big, scary, super people that everyone's actually trying to be in Yarnum. There are the Is, who were so close to the Great Ones that they can't be described as human anymore. And also, there's a bunch of Great One-adjacent things just wandering around in their tombs. And there are the Loran, which describes the course that Yarnum is currently hurtling down. The Loran, at some point, did a terrible thing, either to the people of Is, because those tombs are nearly empty, or to the Tumerians, I'm thinking the people of Is, and were, they were punished with the curse of beasthood. Can you describe that? Oh, God. The way that I see this, Crystal, is that beasthood in Bloodborne is a lot like vampirism, and <laughs> that you can stave things off by drinking blood, especially cursed blood. But as you get more and more of it, you become more and more beast-like, and you need more and more blood to not be a beast. And over time, you can't stop it. You just become a beast. And the more cursed blood you ingested in trying to stave it off, the more powerful a beast you are. And basically, what happened to the country of Loran, which was a neighbor to the Temerians and to the Ease, was that it succumbed completely to the curse of beasthood, and everyone in that nation became beasts or were devoured by beasts, and all that remains of it now is a burning desert filled with beasts whose bellies are full of lightning. Now, in this game, beasthood and insights are placed in opposition to each other. If you have high insight, you have low beasthood. If you have low insight, you have higher beasthood. Now, that That's... seems to me like the, the state of man, naturally, is in between a beast and a god, because you're like an animal, but also you think good, right? Yeah. And you can either go towards the path of getting more insights, getting eyes on the inside, or you can go the path of being more like a beast. I think it's worth noting that your default state is zero insight. That's and, true. And, and also max zero beast. 
and maximum beasthood. Yeah. Maximum yeah. or zero? Well, the if you have zero insight, you have the maximum beasthood potential. Because in this game's mechanics, beasthood is expressed as a bar that you can fill up when you go into beast mode or devour a beast blood pellet that lets you do extra damage with your beast stat. And the lower your insight, the higher your damage potential. Yes, you're right. Like, there are entire builds that are just people going to one or zero insight and turning into a big monster and going ham on bosses and obliterating them in seconds. Which is fun. I like it. Anyway, there... We're... The... God, maybe it would be best to start with Vergaben. Vergaben? Verga... What's the name I call it? Bergenworth. Lord. Is there a Vergaben in this game? Maybe not. Sure. So, Bergenworth. Bergenworth is like... uh, Initially, it's just a university, right? It's a place of learning. We have to set when this was. After the other civilizations. After all the other civilizations fall. Okay, sure. Timeline is not super clear in this one, because in Dark Souls, it feels like the scale is tens of thousands of years. And this one, it feels more like hundreds. Yeah. It feels that. But it could also be quite a lot longer. It could be like a millennium between the fall of the Temerians and the rise of Bergenworth. Because the Temerians are treated a lot like the ancient Roman Empire by the super racist scholars of Bergenworth. Yeah. Because they are super racist. So, like, are they into the Romans or not into the Romans? They want to be the Romans. They want to be the supermen. They want to be the great conquerors who understand the universe and then colonize the universe. Okay, so there's a university, and this is a relatively normal place. But but you did say that we wanted to describe what happened to the Temerians first. Yeah. Yes. God, okay. So the way that I understand it is that the Temerians in their time were like the center of learning and power. They were all like nine feet tall and absolutely alabaster pale regardless of their backgrounds, and they were well-versed in forbidden blood arts, which is one of the things that you can learn from the Great Ones. And they weren't too concerned with the Great Ones themselves, but over time the Temerians became so... uh, What's the best word here? Where they're just completely all up in their own shit. Decadent, maybe? Opulent? They like to kill people just to watch their screaming shades fly around for a while. Corrupted? Yeah, one of those. Rich people? Yeah. Anyway, they ended up being destroyed by, like, a cultural rot, where it's like they're vampires. They're fucking vampires. The Temerians are Dracula, and the last queen of Temeria was this lady named Yarnum, who is probably named that because she was the queen of the city that would later become Yarnum. But then they just, a group of people banded together, a non-vampires, and killed. Well, yeah, sort, sort of, sort of. That might actually come a little bit later. After Bergenworth. But the the Tumerians faded and were gone. But some vampires remained? Some vampires remained. And they would eventually become known. It's funny because Bergenworth treats the Tumerians as this society that you want to ascend to. But I think that the actual descendants of the Tumerians were saddled with the cultural baggage of having been a bunch of bloodthirsty monsters. And they are now known as the Vile Bloods. Yeah, yeah, it's like the rivalry between the Holy Roman Empire and the Byzantine Empire. I guess just at some point, the the knowledge that the the vampires were the 
Tumerians. Tumerians, I think. Tumeric Patarians was lost. Yeah. What do you think of that idea, Crystal, that the vile bloods and the Tumerians are the same people? Yeah, they do kind of look alike, don't they? They're all alabaster pale with white hair. Yeah, all the vile bloods we see look basically the same, and they look very pale and like very light blonde hair, almost kind of like uh, the Yarnum, the Tumerian cream, but and, slightly less pale. And they're all like genuinely immortal in the same way that the Tumerians and their tombs are. So it's like, yeah, maybe maybe them, because the vile bloods, it turns out, are actually really hard to kill. That comes up later, depending on whether or not you do a particular side quest. So the Temerian Empire falls. They splinter off and become the Vile Bloods in Canehurst Castle, which is a distant neighbor to Yarnum. And everybody's like, "Don't fuck with those people. They're vampires. They, they don't, don't, don't be them. They're bad. They have the old blood. Beware the old blood." And that 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 phrase gets used a lot in this game. Blood gets used a lot in this game. Don't control F blood in a dump of yeah. Bloodborne, or maybe do. What were you saying, Crystal? The other feature of the vile bloods that we see is they all, they're all fairly tall, kind of like Yarnum. Yeah. Kind of lanky figures. They really are. And many of them include, like, you have multiple instances of the Miyazaki woman being a vile blood. Yeah, you have, uh, you have Annalise, you have Lady Maria of the Astral Clock Tower, and you have uh, ooh, Yarnum in a way. In the church. Oh, yes. Her, yes, yes, yes. Um, the Lady of Pleasure. Ariana. Ariana, yes, okay. A lot of A's. A lot of A's. They love those A sounds in the Vile Bloods. You know what else Miyazaki is preoccupied with with the Vile Bloods? What's that? Uh, the inherent horror of pregnancy. You know what? He sure is. This whole game seems to be a reflection on pregnancy and pregnancy loss. And pregnancy is scary. And probably menstruation. There's a lot of menstruation stuff in there. Oh, yeah, you think the School of Mensis is maybe about Miyazaki's thoughts on menstruation? It's distinctly possible. Yeah, whenever you see Queen Yarnum, she is like a pale, like alabaster skin, white dress, and then a big red blood stain where her uterus would be. Like she had a miscarriage. Well, except that the implication is that later it was a very violent cesarean section, but that's Bergenworth, and we'll get to them. There was a theory floating around that the blood of blood ministration is menstrual blood. And that's why all of the blood priestesses are like youngish women mm. and not the oldish women. Oh, right. Because once you get like post-menopause, you can't do blood ministration anymore. Oh, that's that sets up the whole... I, I genuinely hadn't reflected on how the blood ministers are all like older dudes... All right, fuck it. Yeah, there's there's a lot of inbuilt, like... You want to be generous to the writers and say that this is really about the attempts by men in power to control the bodies of anyone who can menstruate. I don't know what this is, really. Yeah, there's a lot. But there, yeah. I think that the base game of Bloodborne had a lot of very confusing messages about its themes until you played the DLC and then it's like, oh, that's what the game is about. Where were we? Where were we? Crystal, take us along. Where were we? Yeah, the Tumerian kingdom fell apart. Yarnum lost her child, uh, an infant great one named Mergo, because she was impregnated by a great one. How is she impregnated? Oh, you know, the <laughs> usual way. 
<laughs> yeah, that's the thing about um, vile bloods is they actually want to give birth to great ones, assumedly. Like, Yarnum seemed really invested in the life of her child. But she lost her child because of the school of Mensis, right? Is that why? Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of the whole thing that Mikolash talks about. I think that there's quite a lot that goes on in a very small space in the backstory of Bloodborne, and it's kind of hard to figure out the exact order of things. I thought Mensis was long after Yarnum. Yes, I would think so too, but again, Yarnum, the queen, is immortal. And mm. the school of Mensis is built around having tried to call down a great old one with a sacrifice, the cutting of an umbilical cord, right? Yeah. And I think that that's what happened to Yarnum's child. What does Mikolash okay. say? Mikolash talks a lot about the creation of Rom, the vacuous spider. Uh, doesn't speak a lot about what happened to the Queen Yarnum in particular. Uh, but does, like, the whole school of Mensis is built on this one spot around the what happened to Marigo. I think Marigo wasn't the name of the child, it was the name of the Great One. Why do you say that? Because Marigo leaves behind a wet nurse. Um, it could also be the wet nurse of Marigo, the child, though. I suppose, but this seems like the kind of setting where a dead child isn't named. And that you have very human-sounding names for a lot of the other great ones. It's not a concrete thing. I just assumed that Marigo was the name of the great one. But we're, we're getting kind of caught up in the minutiae here without trying to describe. We're being very much like Bloodborne here. We're just talking about things a little bit out of order. Okay. So you've got this university, Bergenworth. And that's after all the other civilizations fell. Everybody falls, and people in Yarnum are just like regular old British people who don't quite know much about their past, but they're just folks. They're just folksy folks, and they've got regular lives. They're just farmers and sanitizers and all sorts. They're just folk. And then there's the people over, over at Bergenworth, which is an institute of learning headed by... Who is the head of Bergenworth? Master... Um, Willem. Master Willem. And the people at Bergenworth, there's a lot of archaeologists who work at Bergenworth, and they decide, you know what, we're going to plunder the tombs of the Temerians to see what we can learn there. And they learn some bad shit. It's like every time there's a story of the cosmic horror variety where it goes, we should not have tried to learn what we did because the learning has made us far more terrible than we were before. That's what happened to the people at Bergenworth. I like to think of it like the dwarves in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> They dug too deep too greedily. Yes. Yeah, that's fair. And then a Balrog came out, but the Balrog was knowledge. So then the people at Bergenworth found people found evidence of the kingdom of Is and Loran and most importantly the Temerians. So they started taking all these different kingdoms and the different ways that they expressed power and inheritance and started to try to work them together into a single unified understanding of the universe by which they could un they could rise to the vault of the heavens and look down upon the entire cosmos that was the goal of bergenworth now and one thing that they brought up out of that was the concept of blood ministration because they believe that by taking the blood of the Great Ones, or the Temerians, or the vast cosmic-like entities, and putting it into themselves, they would over time become like the Great Ones. And that's really the start of the whole shit. Does that sound like an accurate description so far, Crystal? That sounds correct to me. 
Yeah. Yeah, and this is where shit starts getting a little bit hinky in this setting. Because after that, after everybody starts learning about this stuff, they set up... Well, actually, the church doesn't come until a little bit later than this. So basically, they're looking for more information on the Great Ones. So instead of just doing a cool plundering of tombs thing, they decide, hey, we're going to meet an actual Great One and see what we can get out of them. So what they do is they form a particular part of their college... And there's this one person, Rom, who is going to be the person that the Great One blesses with knowledge of the universe. And it's probably on the blood moon that they do this because the Great Ones always come down during the blood moon. Somebody gets pregnant. They sacrifice, like, the child, which is symbolized by the umbilical cord. And after the child is sacrificed, a Great One comes down and... Something? Fuck. I don't, I'm not really sure. It, it's all very vague. But regardless, they summon cause. Mother cause. And she grants this individual, Rom, eyes on the inside. And it, she gives them all the knowledge that they wanted, including the people, not just Rom, but the people around them. And it's everything they wanted, but they weren't prepared for it. And so their minds are fucking obliterated by it. And Rom doesn't just transform into a great one themselves. The shock of this new knowledge kills them and kills all the people who were there with them who have also been transformed into like smaller Roms. And so their corpse is left at the height of the Tower of Learning while their shade, an echo of what used to be their consciousness, lurks forever on the surface of a moonlit lake. Even a dead god can dream as they say. Yes, that is exactly what's happening with Rom. And the people of Bergenworth say, Wow, Kaz must have all the answers. We're going to go find Kaz now. And off they go to a little fishing village which is blessed by Kaz. And this is actually the heart of the DLC for Bloodborne, the central thesis of which is actually living in Innsmouth kind of rules. Yeah, the, the thing that struck me about Bloodborne is it's a very good um, critique and analysis of Lovecraft. Mm. And yes, the conclusion was, I guess, it's cool to be Innsmouth. They had their fish in gold. What do you make of that particular bit, the fishing village where Kaz has granted a form like fish to all the villagers, Crystal? Uh, You know, this is an alternative route you could take with the Great Ones, where instead of uh, harvesting their blood and trying to become a greater even than them... You just, like, have a, a reciprocal relationship with them. Yeah, that, that's something that struck me while we were playing through it. Monica, I think you remarked this, like, it's interesting that I saw it as being a good thing when everyone there was so ugly. But my assertion is that to them, that's not ugly. It's just a better form for a fishing village. If you were going to be a bunch of fisher people, maybe you want to be able to swim like a shark. Because prior to that, they were not doing too well. No. It was a failing fishing village that Kaz came to. And she's like, hey, y'all want to be fish? And they're like, we're going to worship the hell out of you. And they just have all the fish they could ever handle. And it's great. So it's like, it's a deeply upsetting place to walk around in as humans who think of the human form being changed as being deeply upsetting. But it's just like, it, it's kind of cool. It's a cool place where everyone's taken care of and they have a very deep personal relationship with their god. So, sorry to jump a little bit, but if Kaz is originally a human, 
when did she emerge or is that just unknown? It, I think from I'm the one who's suggesting that cause used to be human. And I think Crystal would agree that the body that cause inhabits used to be human. Yeah. Bloodborne is different than Dark Souls in that the part of the world we see is a is a very, very small part of the world. Yeah. It suggested that there's way more going on out there than there is in Yarnum. So wherever Koss came from, wherever that human came from, could have just been some other country and they got to this village through the sea. Cool. Okay. I, yeah. We, we see, even though in Dark Souls the world is theoretically a lot bigger, we see everything that's relevant in the entire Dark Souls setting. Everything. Bloodborne, very much not like that. But yeah, it's like, and, but uh, what? I would like to live in Kaz's village, to be perfectly honest. That seems like a pretty decent way to live. You don't have to worry about being fed. You don't have to worry about shelter. You can just be a fish and swim around all day. That's all right. I'm yeah, for like that. Seafood. Seafood's good. Seafood's good. Maybe being a fish is okay. I would like to breathe on both land and water. That's all right. And frankly, yeah, you'd probably get used to looking in the mirror after a while. I got to imagine that your brain can adjust when you're helped along by a benevolent god who keeps you fed. People wish that they had gods that were as hand on, hands-on as Mother Cause. So anyway, this fishing village where Cause makes her home is where Bergenworth finds her. And before they head out there, Bergenworth gets together a bunch of folks that they call hunters. And I, I forget, is this... No, this is before the Curse of the Beasts. Okay. They don't call them hunters at this point. It's just people. And among the people who go to the fishing village are a vile blood cousin of the queen named Maria. There's Lawrence, who would later become very important in the healing church. There's, um... Garman, the first hunter? I don't think Garman was actually part of it yet. Garman, interestingly, is not linearly able to line up with this part because they're not hunters yet, and Garman appears in response to the blood curse. But, uh, who is the accursed Ludwig? Yes, Ludwig's there, Lawrence is there, Maria's there. There's a whole bunch of people who are there. And what they do is they're here for cause more than anything. And they see this village where everyone is monsters from their own perspective. They're fish people. They're perfectly fine. They're nice folks. But they're fish people, and the people of Bergenworth see them as unhuman and therefore worthy of killing on their way to cause. And they just slaughter a lot of them. And then they find Cause on the beach. She's deeply pregnant. And they murder her. Or maybe they have boats out at sea and they drag her up out of the waters and they murder her. But regardless, the people of Bergenworth kill Cause. Murder her, cut out her fetus, and dissect it. Is that part what happened? I thought that's where one of the umbilical cords came from. That would make sense, yeah. Because she was pregnant at the time. She was very pregnant at the time. Now that fetus, though... That fetus being the child of a great one was very, very powerful and very, very sapient. Its intelligence was enough to know what was being taken away from it and the horror that was being perpetrated against it. And in its pain and in its sorrow and in its rage, it gave birth to the most terrible of all dreams, the hunter's nightmare. And in its fury, it placed upon the people of Bergenworth a curse that their blood was the blood of beasts and that all of their descendants forever should be beasts as they are more and more terribly 
and the people of the village back up this curse. They worship the dead body of Kaz, and they worship the dead body of the fetus, and they also join their voices to the orphans. You can hear them chanting it many, many, many years later that the fiends, the people of Bergenworth, should be paying for it for every generation forever. Most I... of the fishing village was killed, though. Yeah, quite a bit. In their hunt for eyes on the inside, which are literal eyes on the brain. What were you saying, Crystal? Yeah, they took out their skulls and looked for the eyes. Yeah. Uh, I was saying I interpreted the curse of the orphan of cause as being specifically the hunter's nightmare, but not the beast curse. So the beast curse came from the villagers? I think the beast curse is just kind of a natural thing that happens if you if you drink too much blood. Because the villagers do wish the beast curse on Bergenworth. Well, let me look up this dialogue. Fishing village dialogue. It's a it's something that you can hear from the first person that you meet when you walk into the dream version of the fishing village. The old guy walking around? Yeah. Curse the fiends, their children too. Their children forever true. Atonement for the wretches, lay the curse of blood upon them and their children and their children's children forevermore. Each wretched birth will plunge each child into a lifetime of misery. Curse of blood. Hmm. I mean, that sounds like the beasthood curse to me. That does sound like the beasthood curse. Which implies that the people of Loran, however many centuries back, did something very similar, possibly to the people of Is, who sound a lot like the fishing village, to be perfectly honest. That makes sense. And Loran was obliterated by this curse. I don't really like the idea of collective guilt to the degree that it implicates generations yet to come. Well... I can see why you wouldn't like that, but it's a story about colonialism and genocidal violence, isn't it? The idea that people whose ancestors participated in genocide carry some part of responsibility, if not exact responsibility, then there's still that legacy that benefits them however many generations later. Yeah, I know most people in town really suck ass, <laughs> but... It seems like the curse is specifically on the blood, because the fishing hamlet priest also says, A call to the bloodless wherever they be, a call to the bloodless wherever they be, fix your ears to hear our calls. So it seems like what gets you guilt is drinking the old blood. Amongst other things. Because, like, there's a thing where the people of Yarnum, they're not just, like, all stuck in this one city, in this one country. People move away from Yarnum. People go to different countries and have families, but the curse carried on their blood perpetuates even there. And it's after they do all this that, oh God, there's so much that goes on after they murder the people of the fishing village because they take so many of them captive and they do horrible human experiments on them. This is the part of the game that nearly made Monica tap out on watching me play it, which was going through the tower of knowledge of experimentation what the hell was the name of it with all the people who had really big heads the living failures no 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 it's uh it's it's the tower before that the tower before the living failures before lady maria the asylum hospital thing. the asylum hospital thing because it's like you can see that and it's not not every person who participated in this reacted to it the same of course lady maria was as a captive of Yarnum, as I'm reading the text, was so disgusted by what she partook in, she threw away her weapon and gave up all her power 
and tried to seek atonement in taking care of the people that Yarnum had kidnapped from the fishing village or taken from their own population. It's not completely clear. And Lawrence and Ludwig seem to move on to dealing with the blood curse. But in the midst of all this, Bergenworth does untold amounts of horrible human experimentation on the people from the village and possibly their own people trying to find a way to force eyes on the inside using the blood of costs which they had in very very great amounts now and it's just all it's it's the worst shit imaginable they're doing just horrible awful evil shit to all these people and afterward there's this schism within bergenworth where it's like they discover in the midst of all this how to do blood ministration which is taking the blood of people who have been blessed with the blood of cause or the blood of the Tumerians and use it to heal wounds and sickness because that's one of the things that it does. It has spectacular regenerative abilities and that is the form of the blood in Bloodborne. You use it and you are healed, but it makes you different. It makes you strange and over time it will make you into a beast, but they don't know that yet. They don't know that because the curse hasn't manifested itself completely. So they start up the Healing Church. And that's started by Lawrence and by Ludwig, who forms the martial arm of the Healing Church for some fucking reason. Right. This is where uh, Bill Gates puts a tracking chip in his vaccine. Yes. God, you, you make that joke, but I have a friend who works in ER in Texas. And he said, man, I'm really looking forward to my uh, Bill Gates tracking chip in the next few months. The blood ministration can cure any disease, which makes Yarnum into a very large, wealthy city where everyone comes to get their diseases cured. Yes. And that's on top of the fabulous wealth that is in all the Temerian tombs. So they have an arbitrarily large amount of gold to play with, too. Is this about the medical industrial complex? <laughs> well, I mean, it's about colonialism. It can be about both. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so why not? Certainly. Why not? And they start up the healing church where you get the blood saints who are usually women of particularly pure blood whose blood is taken from them and used by the blood ministers, universally old men, to cure people who are able to make payment to the healing church. And this is when the curse of the beast starts to manifest. It gets bad and it gets bad fast. When the blood moon rises... People who have partaken of an especially large amount of the blood begin to turn into monsters. And people don't know how to deal with that because the beasts are so much stronger than men are. And out of the populace, there comes a single person named Garman, who is not actually a member of the church, but he is able to form a sort of small militia of regular people, outfitting them and teaching them how to fight. Garman, later known as the First Hunter, is brought in by the Healing Church to create weapons and armor that an order of hunters will be able to use to fight the Plague of Beasts. And Garman does this for decades, until he is too old to fight anymore. But throughout all of this, he realizes that things are getting worse and worse, and that there's no way for them to stop the Curse of the Beast just by fighting. It has to be addressed at its root bringing an end to the night of the blood moon. Do the nights start getting longer or what? Crystal, I want to hear your take on that one. Did they mention that the nights get longer? The nights are basically everlasting until something is addressed. There's a few people who just remark that this has been a long night or something like that. Or it will be a long night. Sorry for the interruption. But yes, what 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 do you see 
as the thing here, Crystal. As what's making the nights long? Sure, yeah. I, I didn't notice that the nights were getting particularly long because it's a long night because it's the night of the hunts, which happens pretty periodically at this point. But uh, when you have to like keep keep your lantern lit all night so the hunters don't come kill you. That is true. And so Garman creates the Order of Hunters, and Ludwig ends up taking control of them, and Garman is basically just relegated to a researcher and a teacher who teaches hunters how to fight and makes weapons for them in his old workshop. And eventually it gets to the point where Garman realizes we can't keep doing this. Eventually we will be destroyed by the beasts because we can't beat them with violence. The hunters, in imbibing themselves with beast blood to be strong enough to fight the beasts, are turning into the most terrible beasts of them all. We have to face this. And so Garman makes a very difficult choice, working together with Maria and Lawrence and Ludwig, who all of whom he's become very close with. He is too old for Maria, sort of. Maria might actually be centuries old, but he lusts after her terribly and never acts on it. It gets weird later. So you think Garman called the moon presence in order to end this? Or at least to provide some kind of solution for it, Yes. He calls on the moon presence during the blood moon when a womb is blessed with child, and the umbilical cord of that child is used to call down the moon presence. And the moon presence is a great old one who takes particular empathy with the plight of the people of Yarnum and provides them a solution in the form of the hunter's dream. And the moon presence, also known as the pale moon, the moon that rises after the blood moon, solid white, grants its blood as a means to interact with the hunter's dream and through the hunter's dream be able to end the long night of the hunt. But in exchange for this, it needs a caretaker. It needs someone who will stay in the hunter's dream and usher through the people of the pale blood who come to end the nightmare. And the person who is selected for that, who volunteers themselves, is Garman. Garman will be the person who stays behind and never-ending toil, never resting, because he knows that without his sacrifice, Yarnum will be completely lost. And so the first pale moon rises, the long night of the hunt is over, though it will return, and the people go their separate ways. This is a much more uh, benevolent reading of the moon presence than most people would have. Yes, because what the moon presence actually does is quite horrific, but it is on a larger scale toward Yarnum itself, merciful in some ways. You could argue that Yarnum's suffering would be ended by Yarnum burning down in the way that Loran did, but that's still extinction. Because uh, with the Hunter's Dream, now when Hunters die, they can simply respawn. Certain Hunters. Pale Blood Hunters. But it, that doesn't actually seem to be... The, the Scourge of the Beast just keeps getting worse and worse even still. It does, yes. So there has to be a solution that they work toward eventually. So, Crystal, you think the moon presence is a bit more malicious? Yeah, I don't think... I don't. Nothing the moon presence is doing seems to be helping out Yarnum in any capacity. If it is intending to do that, it is uh, failing. I think the reading that I have here is that if the pale moon didn't provide a way for the hunter's night to be ended prematurely, then Yarnum would have burned down a long time ago. It seems like that's kind of what needs to happen to end the beasts. Yeah, but it means the extinction of the entire Yarnum people. 
but what we have now is an endless status quo where we're gonna have a night of the hunts uh getting close to basically every night it, it that's happening at, like at this point it feels like it might be an annual thing maybe a monthly thing i don't know but I yeah, guess having that's like a, a monthly big... thing where you have to kill all the beasts is not a great status quo. It's a pretty big dilemma. Like, do you um, extend suffering so that there might be a cure, or do you you end it? And I think people who say ending it would be the most merciful are, are aren't wrong. And neither are the people who say like, well, there, if there's a possibility that we can find out a solution someday, they're not wrong either. The thing sort of compli- like assisted suicide. Yeah, the thing complicating that is that there was an old Yarnum that did get burned down, and now it's just beasts living down there, but they seem to be doing okay. Well, there are still a bunch of burning bodies and humans being torn apart in the streets every once in a while in old Yarnum. Crystal, I saw what was going on there. I don't know if that's okay. <laughs> it, it just seems like the conflict here is that they don't want to all become beasts. They want to become great ones. But they keep that is, turning into beasts, so they have to try to reverse that so they can become great ones. But if they just all became beasts, maybe it'd be okay. Like Loran? Yeah, like Loran. Which is, was lost to the deserts long ago. Well, they're not a civilization anymore because they're beasts, but the beasts might be doing fine. The only beasts of Loran that are left are the ones in the tombs. Yeah, they're just chilling. Just chilling and shooting lightning at things. Yeah, at you, because you're here to kill them. They don't seem too sapient. You know what? That's that's fair insofar as, like, I talk about the fishing village. Maybe the fishing village is fine. But there is one problem with this. The beasthood curse is definitely a curse. itself a malignancy, and it ties into the hunter's nightmare, which is the actual bad thing. The hunter's nightmare is where people who get blood drunk go when they die, and they just fight and die and die and die and suffer literally forever. It is hell. It is hell for the people in this setting. To be mad with lust for violence forever is like a particularly wrathful version of hell. And you go through it, and it's bad. I mean, you know, that not that what Valhalla is? I, Valhalla is punctuated by everybody getting together and having a bunch of drinks and eating good food and like kissing each other. And then you go out and you have honorable fights, and that's fine. But yeah, how's like, that any different from, you know, being a beast who kills a prey animal and then eats it? Well, I mean, like, it, you're not a beast in the hunter's dream. You're sexy just... Valkyrie ladies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's no sexy Valkyrie ladies in the hunter's dream. Nor Lady is Maria's there rest. there. Lady Maria's there, and it's it, the fact that she ended up there is like, she sort of chooses to be there, kind of. But that just means that she chooses to go to hell as repentance for her crimes. Man... Everyone's faves in this setting are are really bad people, except for maybe Garman. Yeah, I mean, it's fine that he has a sex doll. Garman sucks. <laughs> <laughs> what makes La- Garman Lady suck Maria so much? Lady Maria at some point killed herself out of the guilt of the fishing hamlet genocide, and then uh, Lady Garman made a sex doll in her image. I think that he probably made that doll in her image while she was still alive. Great. That makes it worse. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's definitely worse. But like on the scale of things, you've got Garman who is a weirdo that never acts on his weirdness versus Lady Maria who actively participated in genocide. Yeah, I guess. Like she felt bad about it, but she felt bad about the genocide that she did. 
which good to be sorry, I guess. We'll get. I want to do a ranking at the end of this episode where we rank the Bloodborne characters according to how tragic they are. Well, maybe not this episode. Maybe that could happen later. Anyway, so the the Hunter's Dream is started as a way to stop the Hunter's Moon Night of the Hunt bullshit where everybody in Yarnum goes wild and everybody's just slaughtering each other. That stops. So the healing church goes on and does its thing. Lady Maria goes off and she like enters the hunter's dream willingly. Lawrence, the first vicar, who is glutted with blood, becomes a beast of such incomparable horror that all the people of Yarnum get together and burn him to death. And he ends up in the hunter's dream because he is the worst and he's also a hunter and he died glutted on blood but because of the way he died he's burning and in fire agony for all time which is not a good thing to be and ludwig the head of the hunters who led them in the charge against the vile bloods and did a second genocide in wiping out the vile bloods uh ends up going to the hunter's dream when he goes mad and he is surrounded by the corpses of all the hunters who served under him it's just like each of them ends up making their own hell, which is a hell of a thing. And the blood of the Pale Moon goes outside of Yarnum, and it gets spread. And it's interesting because I think that the only characters who are ever confirmed to have participated in the Night of the Hunt to have helped to end it, to have, parta- to have partaken in the Hunter's Dream, are all foreigners. That Yarnum really doesn't like foreigners. Oh, I, Yarnum. It seems Go like ahead, a medical person. debt thing. I. How do you mean? Because when you come to... Say Yarnum, you are seeking some blood ministration to cure your disease, and then you sign a contract to become a hunter. Seems like, okay, we'll cure you, but you have to uh, kill the beasts for us. And then you get yelled at by all the people of Yarnum who insist that you, the foreigner, are the reason that there's a beast curse at all. People of Yarnum are very small-minded. Medical industrial complex. I guess so. And racism, just good old-fashioned racism. Don't forget that. But over time, the people, the People of the Pale Blood do come back, and they end the Night of the Hunt. And it may occur once every few years. One of the people who ends up doing this is Eileen the Crow. And Eileen the Crow is from a foreign land, and she is a person who participates in the Hunter's Dream and ends the Night of the Hunt, though the means by which she does this aren't especially clear. Another person who probably does it is Father Gascoigne. And there are others almost universally foreigners who come to this land that hates them, that is built on top of many genocides, and save it from itself over and over and over, in a way perpetuating its suffering, but also making sure that the people there don't go extinct. And all of them in their way are also drawn back to Yarnum. Eileen returns because she sees hunters being lost to the blood, fu- the blood frenzy and puts them down so that they don't hurt more people. Gascoigne loses himself to the blood frenzy. Eileen was actually getting ready to hunt him. And eventually, there's this one person that we'll call the Good Hunter, who shows up, not knowing that they possess the pale blood, seeking ministration to fix some affliction that is never made clear to us. And that's you. That's the player. And shit gets weird. Shit gets very weird. That's like 95% of the story of Bloodborne. Yeah, that's most of the story of Bloodborne. You it's have all to seek pale blood to transcend the hunt. It is very Zelda in that it's, or Breath of the Wild, in that it's mostly backstory. Yeah. I mean, if you look at it, that's also like Skyward. That's a bunch of Zelda games. A bunch of Zeldas. 
So like Eileen and Jura and Gasquan all got the first ending of Bloodborne. They did. It should but be if you described. Get the next couple endings, you gotta do. You gotta go the extra mile. You got to because it's like, and it, the actual story that takes place in Bloodborne isn't a whole lot to talk about. You meet specific characters. And you help them through their personal journeys. You try to save people. You succeed with some. You fail with others. You meet a guy who's eating corpses and going like, Hey, can you find a safe place for me? And you just like hit him with your hammer a bunch. Because it's like, stop eating people. Very strong anti-cannibalism stance. Um, but it's like, no, you just journey across the horrors that took place in Yarnum. You see all the bad things that have happened. You deal with the legacy of it in the form of all the bosses. You see the horrible experiments that have been placed on people. You run into a whole bunch of people who are still performing weird human experimentation and pretending to be perfectly nice blood saints, like Yosefka's fake double woman. Oh, I hate that lady. There are some other factions that seem to be semi-related to the church, such as the School of Mensis. Tell us about the School of Mensis. Well, let me let me pull up the specific line. Was it stillbirth of their brains? Yes, it it was. I think that it was. They summoned down. It may have been that may have been cause, and it caused the stillbirth of their brains. Every great one loses its child and then yearns for a surrogate. This cord granted Mensis audience with Mergo, but resulted in the stillbirth of their brains. That's the line that made me think that Murgo is an old one. Yeah, I think I think they audience with Murgo the baby. <laughs> yeah, the stillbirth. But wouldn't of the, the brains, cord have come Murgo, from the baby? Because Murgo was stillborn, so you get audience with Murgo. Your brain connects with Murgo, and then your brain is stillborn. Because I don't think Murgo. I don't think the baby was stillborn. I think that when you fight Yarnum, the the true Yarnum down in the depths of the Tumerian Chalice dungeon. Um, she's still pregnant, but she still has all that blood on her abdomen, and you can hear the baby crying the whole time. It seems to me that what they did was they used the child as a sacrifice to call down the Great One, Mergo, and that created the Nightmare of Mensis, which you can only fix by destroying Mergo's wet nurse and freeing the ghost of the child. And this is also what Eileen and all also did this? It's very possible. It's, it's not clear to me if things that happen in Bloodborne actually happen or if they have to happen over and over and over and over. Because if you have high enough insight, you can hear the the crying of Murgo throughout the whole game. You can. That's a sad baby. Does that it crying like, stop after you kill the wet nurse? Yeah, so you just have to go into the, the Night of the Hunts, kill the wet nurse so Murgo also dies... And that'll uh, stay back the hunt for a little while longer. Because Mergo makes... Uh, okay, I still think that Mergo is the old one. But the baby makes a satisfied, restful sound when you kill the wet nurse. There's a yeah. running theory um, online that the father is Odeon. I think it's the invisible one. Yeah, uh -huh. the formless one. Because Mergo is also formless. That's... That would make sense. Okay. I mean, nothing is definitive because this is a series that is... It's built on obfuscation. And it would make sense for Odeon, who's, who's like the highest great one because he's formless, so he's ascended. He has a big temple in Yarnum, and he was uh, Yarnum's husband, I guess. Something like that for sure. 
But then also, they might call them formless just because they can't see them, but that could have just as easily been like amygdala's cousin. Because you can't see amygdala until you've got a certain amount of insight, or you see it at the very height of the blood moon. That's different from the other great ones that you meet, because those are visible even with zero insight. Right. So formless may not mean literally formless, is what I'm suggesting. Just invisible to those without eyes on the inside. Hey, every time you get more insight, do you think you're literally growing eyes on your brain or the inside of your skull? Yes, of course. Oh. That's fucked up. When you spend insight, do the eyes just get absorbed back into your brain? Yeah. Oh. That's also gross. I mean, that, that happens. People, like, generate stuff and absorb it back into themselves all the time. I would not like eyes inside of my head. Well, they're not hooked up to anything. They can't see. They're hooked up to your brain. Yeah, but I mean, like, they don't have um, they don't have the nerves that would allow them to actually see. Are you sure? No. Maybe you're just also staring inside of your head the whole time. Oh, well, it's real dark in there. I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> How would you know it's so dark? Maybe start glowing. So this, there sure is a lot of baby sacrifice and babies making big nightmare curses in this game. Yeah. Yeah, Miyazaki's real, really scared by pregnancy. And by dead babies. Yeah. And periods. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot there. I mean, all of these things kind of suck. They are frightening in a lot of I ways. I mean, not babies. I mean, they <laughs> can be Pregnancy kind of sucks. Yeah. But, it, uh, yeah, so you, the major things that you have to do, you kill the Echo of Rom. You free the child's ghost by killing Mergo's wet nurse, allowing the child to let go of the nightmare, ending the nightmare. And if you go back down, the ghost of Yarnum bows to you in respect for having freed her child. And after that, it's like, th- those are the ma- ma- most major things, right? Yeah. And after that, you just have to make a choice. You end the hunter's dream. You end the night of the hunter's moon by using your pale blood. And the easiest way to do this is letting Garman kill you using your blood as a sacrifice and you will awake as if from a terrible nightmare and it will be as if nothing happened but you paid off your medical debt you paid off your medical debt and you, and can, you get the fuck out of town you do and crystal i've heard you say that you're of the three endings the one where you let garman kill you and you get to just leave yarnum because it was all a weird dream that's your view the best one yeah this whole bee scourge thing not your problem you just, you're just I, here to cure your illness. And see, it's interesting that you say that because I think that it might, in many ways it's actually the worst one. Because, like, that's clearly the path that Gascoigne chose and the path that Eileen chose. But it didn't actually free them of the beast curse, either of them. Nor did it free them of the pull of the hunter's nightmare. And they kept returning to Yarnum over and over as the blood moon continued to rise. And it, it feels to me like all you're really doing is putting off the eventual reckoning that has to come when dealing with the legacy of your blood. Well, you know, Gascoigne has like a daughter in here. Uh, Jura, you know, he likes the beast of old Yarnum. Eileen, she wants to protect the hunters. What you need to do is decide none of this is your problem and go back to Boletaria. Ah, Everything's fine there. In Boletaria. Yeah. Isn't that where Demon Souls takes place? Yeah. Everything's super fine there where demons eat the souls of peoples. Don't worry, they handled it. They, han- they, they handled it. Well, I mean, like, I think that 
I would have agreed with your take on that until the DLC came out where you run around and see all the horrible things that led to you, the person. And it's like the probably the most important thing that you do in Bloodborne is finding the orphan of cause and freeing it of its burden and its suffering and ending the hunter's nightmare because you're dismantling hell, basically. But more than that, you're seeking to right some part of the horrific wrong of your ancestors. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing to right those wrongs. Yeah, you should do that and then leave. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so what's the second ending, Crystal? The second ending is you refuse German's offer to sever you from the dream, and you gotta fight him. And you fight him, and you beat him, but then the moon presence shows up. It's like, hmm... I need a new caretaker of the dream. Uh, it's your job now and forces you to be the new Gearman. And you're wheeled around. We haven't talked about the doll at all, have we? It's a sex doll. Right, but it's also like actually an old one. It like, is a sex doll given a sort of consciousness within the hunter's dream, if you have one insight at least. And it is also like people have pointed out that if you attack it, it bleeds white not in the way that things do when they try, like, things bleed gray when they're lesser great ones, but only pure great ones bleed white. So the doll is the closest thing you know to a god, and the relationship that you have with it is very interesting. Uh, Crystal, do you ever stick around and listen to Garman mumble while he sleeps? Yeah, he starts crying about how the dream sucks and he wants to get out of here. He begs Lawrence and Ludwig to come back for him he's so tired and he can't handle it and it's just it's like the single most heart-wrenching thing in the whole game to me because he's been doing this for other people that have plainly forgotten no one's gonna come back for him it's just you you're the only one who can and spilling his blood serves the same purpose because i think he was the first pale blood but what is the last ending of bloodborne crystal Well, if you gather up uh, various thirds of umbilical cords from various sources, I think you get one from uh, from uh, the Woman of Pleasure. You get one from uh, the fake Yosefka. You get one in the uh, abandoned old workshop where they summon the Moon Presence and Mergo's wet nurse. Yeah, and Mergo's wet nurse. If you have three of those, you can resist the Moon Presence attempting to make you a Gearman, and you can fight the Moon Presence. You're like, all right, that's enough of this shit. Let's end this. And uh, I, I, I didn't have the heart to do the thing with the uh, what, what, with uh, 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 what's her name? Ariana. With Ariana and her weird screaming child. It was just so small and helpless, and it kept cooing at her while she was weeping. And I was like, I, I can't do this. It's not for me. And I just left. We did not kill a baby. We didn't kill a baby. Yeah, a baby is no threat to you. That's why they, you only need three, and they give you four. Yeah. Because she is impregnated by, I guess, Odeon, because she's in the Temple of Odeon. Yeah. And it's the Night of the Hunts, and she's a vile blood. Yeah. So she gives birth to a little old one baby in the sewers. Mm Mm-hmm. Boy, that's fucked up. Yeah. Everything about this setting is fucked up. Boy, there's a lot of, like, there's a lot, like, there's a difference where it's, like, the queens of the vile bloods are like, yeah, it's gonna be me. But it's different when, when it's just this woman who's like, what's happening to me? And it's like, I didn't want to be pregnant. No. 
Oh, that's so fucking horrific. That in many ways is the most horrific thing in the whole game. And this game is full of really horrific shit. Monica got sick of this game by the end of it. I, I didn't really like this game. It was actively repugnant, you would say? Sure. But, uh, yeah, yeah. You, so you get three of the chords. You hammer Yosefka's evil twin. And you save the baby from Mariko's wet nurse. And you go to the old shop where Garman was linked into infinite servitude. And you put it all together and you eat them. You eat the you eat you eat the umbilical cords because why wouldn't you eat them? That's just what you do. And then the moon presence touches you and it's like, I'm gonna do the old one stuff to you. And you're like, Hey, you and me aren't that different actually. You have a human spine. I have a human spine. I've eaten a lot of umbilical cords. Let's fucking go. Yeah, I have old f- one stem cells from the yeah, umbilical cord. <laughs> It is stem cells, it, isn't it? It's stem cells. So at that point, you and the moon presence are essentially the same thing. You're already an old one. So you just fucking slug it out with them. And it's actually an easier fight than Garamond. Garamond's a hard motherfucker. But the moon presence, not too bad. I initially had a little bit more trouble with the moon presence because I didn't realize that after it knocks you down to just one HP, it spends like 10 seconds just sitting there. So I was pumping myself full of healing instead of running over and beating the fire out of it. But you should definitely just run over and beat the fire out of it. And if I play the game again to get the other endings, I'll beat the fire out of it at least once. But uh, yeah, and then after that, you basically partake of the moon presence's blood, and then you collapse. And then later, you see the doll holding this big, large, black worm slug thing. And it's sort of cute for what it is, except that it's as large as an adult human's forearm. And she strokes a little bit, and she says, now is something, 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 good hunter. And you're like, ah, I'm the slug baby. Why is this the good ending? Because you becoming an old one, a true old one, one of the architects of the universe that is one of the slugs, is the only means by which to fully change the universe so as to end the curse of the beasts without killing everyone in Yarnum. You are now in a position to make the world better instead of merely acting upon it through violence. How? I don't know. It's old one shit. Why didn't Rom end the curse? Because Rom got his brains blown out because he didn't put in the work. Mm. I mean, that's what happened. Yeah, she should have eaten some stem cells. Should have eaten some stem cells. Should have had some eyes on the inside to start with. Should have been a pale blood, I suppose. But it's like, yeah, you, you, you're, you're now a god figure in the hunter's dream, and you have the power to. I mean, you've already ended the hunter's nightmare. You can break the curse. It's just a thing you can do. If pale blood is what you are, it's what you got in you. Why do you have to seek pale blood to transcend the hunts? Oh, that note isn't for. Um, okay, there's two ways to read this. It's not. For you, it's for the blood minister who brought you into this whole thing, which is why the blood minister's assistant goes, ah, you found pale blood, have you? And the other side of it is that you do have to seek pale blood, Garman. And it's basically just a question of Garman will sit around and wait until you've done enough, and then he'll use your pale blood as sacrifice to end the hunt. Well, I'm I'm loading up the intro of the game. Okay. He says, oh, yes. Pale blood. Well, you've come to the right place. Yarnum is the home of blood ministration. You only need to unravel its mystery. Yep. But where should an outsider like yourself begin? With a bit of Yarnum blood of your own. But first, you'll need a contract. And then you go into character creation. 
is he maybe he's giving you Yarnum's blood, the pale blood. That could make sense, I suppose, but you yourself are pale blood, aren't you? Why? Because it's spread into other countries, just like it with, did with Eileen and Gascoigne. Why are only foreigners pale blood? I don't know, but it is a fact of the setting from what I can tell. I don't know. Monica, what's your take? Um, maybe all the pale bloods in Yarnum got like were the first people who died. You think? Who resolved the the dream in the first way? Oh, and or the knight in the first way. So now they need to like import. And that's why the knights are getting longer because they need foreigners with the pale blood. What about the note that says uh, the nameless moon presence beckoned by Lawrence and his associates? Pale blood. Yeah, pale blood. The moon presence. The moon presence is pale blood, but also you have pale blood. Yeah, because you ca- it the moon presence granted its blood to German and to certain others. And that is the means by which the Hunter's Night can be ended, sacrifice of the Moon Presence's blood. And that is also the medium by which it is able to force you to be a caretaker of the Hunter's Dream. Pale blood. Pale blood. Okay. That's just how I see it. I know, when I think of pale, I definitely think of the Tumerians and the Vile Bloods. Oh, that's the old blood. The old blood's different from the pale blood. Yeah, it's super different. Beware the old blood. Seek the pale blood. What about the forbidden blood? <laughs> I think that might also just be the old blood. I'm not fucking sure. someone brought forbidden blood to Canehurst Castle and begat Wasn't... the vile bloods. I think that's the Temerian blood. I, oh, mm, I'll be honest, Crystal. I don't fucking know. This game tries real hard to obfuscate its bullshit sometimes. So there's there's, there's pale... a lot of instances of blood. There's also a deleted dialogue referring to the blood of a sage. Uh-huh. I mean, there you find the body parts of lots of sages down in, like, I think the Loran chalice, maybe the Tumerian stuff. It's all bad. All this bloodshed is bad. I think that what you do when you turn into the little squid is you end all this bloodshed. No more bloodshed, says tiny squid good hunter. I, I don't know if you have the capacity to end all this bloodshed just because you're a little squid guy. Why not? You like you squeeze you squeeze a little worm the size of your finger and it summons up an entire nebula and blasts whatever is in front of you with like shooting stars and you're like the size of somebody's forearm. You can do some crazy shit. Okay, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna ask the doll to squeeze me and I'm gonna burn yarn into the ground. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Fair. It's like ah, you thought this would be a way out, but you forgot that I hate you. <laughs> German, you fucking creep. So you would put Garman fairly low on the list of uh, tragic figures in Bloodborne. I mean, his second line is like, you can use anything you want here, even the doll. <laughs> Which is a pretty bad first impression. Even the doll, should it please you. That's grody. It's pretty grody. I hope that picks up decently on the mic and I don't have to just cut it out. That's Bloodborne. That that is that is basically bloodborne. It's bloody and it's grody and it's full of colonialism and being scared of pregnancy and menses and like it turns into like a half thoughtful meditation on what it means to be descended from colonizers and genociders. Like I, I actually kind of like it insofar as that goes. Yeah, the old and hunters it, definitely give it some more thematic clarity. That game would not have made any goddamned sense without that DLC to me. Like, that DLC is more than half the plot and almost all of the thematic cohesion. Before that, it was just a game about how scary pregnancy is. God. 
So yeah, that, yeah, yeah, you're right. That's Bloodborne. That's Bloodborne. It's messy, but it's a fun game to play. And if you like weird post-Victorian werewolf monsters transitioning over into cosmic horror, it's worth playing. In conclusion, 9 out of 10. In conclusion, Bloodborne is a land of contrasts. Thank it's you no for Sekiro. I still haven't played Sekiro. Oh, if you want a Miyazaki story about colonialism, Sekiro's your game. Yeah, I guess it would be. It's actually set in Japan, right? Yes. Man, imagine this FromSoft game headed by Miyazaki that's not set in a pretend place. That's Sekiro. That's Sekiro. All right, I'll, I'll play Sekiro eventually. I've been holding off on buying it because I hate the idea of giving Activision money. Yeah. But, I mean, like, one of these days I'll definitely play it because I like those games for what they are. And Bloodborne was a lot of fun, too. It took a lot of adjusting to get used to the flow of Bloodborne, even after the relatively quick uh, combat of Dark Souls 3. Because Bloodborne is still far removed. You want to take some fun questions? Game. Yeah, I like questions. I think I had a tweet on here. We had some in our email. Oh, okay. And our email addresses. Where do we want to start, Crystal? No, no, wait. Where do we send emails? Oh, but, but okay. If you have questions for the Book of Medora podcast, you can send them to bookofmedorapodcast at gmail.com. It's a bit late to send Bloodborne questions, but if you send them, hell, we'll probably try to answer them. Charlotte asks, is Bloodborne in the same universe as Demon Souls? And if not, why not? Okay, Crystal, you're going to have to cover this one because me and Monica haven't gone through Demon Souls. I've never played Demon Souls, but I know they say Umbasa and they say Umbasa in Demon Souls. I think Gasquan says Umbasa. Really? Yeah. Okay, so he's clearly from wherever Demon Souls takes place yeah, after yeah, it's I'm... been taken care of. I... The other thing is that there's an old one in Demon Souls. Oh, is there? Yeah, he's what kind called of old the one old is... one. Oh, is he like a big slug guy or does he look like Rom? He's like a sea cucumber. Oh shit, it's an old one. Yeah, so it's <laughs> it seems like they're just in the same universe, you know. Okay, I buy that. There are no demons in Bloodborne, but I guess all the hunters probably ran them out before they all went to hunter hell. I think the demons were all summoned by the mist of the old one. Oh, okay. Now, see, that if I can summon Mist as a little tiny squid baby, then you have the ability to change a lot of shit. Yeah, I could I could summon demons to Yarnum. Yeah, yeah. That was what you wanted to do in the first place, right? Right. Yeah. Summon demons to Yarnum. Get rid of Yarnum. There is no reason why they wouldn't be in the same universe except for, of course, intellectual property law. Yeah, intellectual property law is the ultimate. Wait, Sony owns Bloodborne too, don't they? Yeah. So maybe they could be in the same universe, even with IP law. Maybe, but who knows? It, it gets complicated with IP law. It does. That's true. Who's who's our next? Okay, so we've decided that they do take place in the same universe. No real reason they can't. Yeah. Okay, so what, what, what's our next question? Uh, similar vein, Luke asks, You can clearly see other arch trees from the Hunter's Dream. Is Yarnum part of the same timeline as Lorjan, or do they occupy separate trees? And if the latter, do you think that Tumerians helped Gwyn slay the Eternal Dragons? Oh, Lord God, Christ in heaven. Okay, yeah, there's Crystal, also what's no your reason why Dark Souls can't be part of the same universe except for IP law, because those are definitely arch trees in the Hunter's Dream. I, okay, 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 okay. So that's your take on it? Yes. I don't think those are arch trees. Why they look exactly like arch trees in Ash Lake. We only see arch trees from the bottom in Ash Lake. We don't see their tops. Like the arch tree is, it's not called the arch tree in this game. It's just called a great tree, right? The one uh, that, that the hunter's dream 
blossoms under. And it's true that the tree as a symbol is very unusual in Bloodborne. I think this is the only place where it's really used as is. But I, I think that there's actually cosmological reasons that Dark Souls and Bloodborne aren't really compatible. Why is that? I, I'm just thinking of a world where it's melting down in like eight different places. <laughs> it's it went, in Lordran the Fire's fading. In Boletaria, there's demons from the mist. In Yarnum, there's a, a scourge of the beast. And then in Japan, uh, you know, there's civil war. Yeah. Yeah, those are about equivalent. Yeah, those are all about the same. Uh, isn't there also a plague in Sekiro? Oh, yes, the dragon rots. Yeah, the dragon rot. Monica doesn't like FromSoft games because of the rot in all of these settings. They do love rot. They love decomposition. They love poison swamps. They do. <laughs> all those things. I'm not, not a fan. Not a fan. That's also why Monica's not as big a fan of Hollow Knight as me. But it's a cuter game, so it's easier for her to stomach most of the time. Yeah. Um, I don't think that those are arch trees. I think that they're great trees. I think that in they are similar and that what they actually represent is other hunter dreams, other players, in the same way that other arch trees in Ash Lake represent other players. But I don't think that they, rep- they fulfill the same cosmological space because the cosmology of Dark Souls is just based on light and dark. The whole universe is built around the flame. And... Like, there isn't room for the old ones as represented in Demon Souls or in Bloodborne to exist in Dark Souls. Because Dark Souls is a much smaller universe, so to speak. Why can't this just be set during one of the endless ages of fire? They're not really endless. They they last a while. So you're suggesting that... Because there was only one... Okay, there were two ages of fire in the first Dark Souls, which is the only one that really dealt with the arc trees and any would we agree that arch trees don't really matter past the first dark souls no yeah because they they super don't but in that first one it's like they're a thing they represent the where was i going with this i've completely lost my train of thought because something went off on my computer they represent Um, other worlds they do represent other worlds um arch trees i guess you could argue that all of this takes place in this one tiny part and there's only two real ages of flame in the first dark souls or the first flame doesn't even need to exist in the other arch trees they could just be a thing particular to this one arch tree but ash lake you can see so many arch trees and that's all within the lore of dark souls the first flame encompasses what's going on in ash lake too yeah Gwyn, the... Gwyn killed all the dragons in ash lake my suggestion is that the first flame happened like under the arch tree that Lordran was built on top of. And it affects what's happening on that arch tree, but the others are different places. But the arch tree that Lordran is the entirety of that arch tree, right? Yeah. But Lordran is actually a small part, geographically speaking, of the Dark Souls world. So there's other parts of the world that aren't held up by the arch tree that are still subject to the physics and cosmology that defines Lordran. There are still the curse of the undead, and the fire is still going out in the world's ending everywhere. Okay, here's how we reconcile it. Dark Souls 3. Oh no. Uh, fire is usurped. The usurpation of fire. New rules. Alright, fine. <laughs> so, uh, Bloodborne it, is a sequel to Dark Souls 3. Which is actually a sequel to Bloodborne. 
Yes, and then at some point Sekiro happens. <laughs> yes, and the first Dark Souls is separate from all of this because it's a self-contained story, but Bloodborne and Dark Souls 3 are definitely connected. Figured it out. <laughs> we did it. Good job, team. Good job, team. We've completed the accursed timeline of FromSoft Demon Souls's. Emily asks, what was your go-to weapon? I'm Threaded Kane all the way. I named my character Belmont for a reason. Crystal, what was your weapon? Hunter's Axe. Why do you like the Hunter's Axe? It hits good, and you can swing it real wide like a halberd, which is also my favorite Dark Souls weapon. That's cool. I used the Kirk Hammer because it's a hammer, and it's like the size of my torso. A hammer that big would weigh like five or 600 pounds, and you just swing it around. It's the most intensely Cameron weapon. Everyone was like, you can't beat some of these bosses with the Kirk Hammer. They're too fast. I beat them all with the Kirk Hammer. I beat everyone. And I just really like hammers. They're- yeah. Like, if you gave a list of weapons. In Dark Souls-style <laughs> games, I really like the giant weapons. Like, in the first Dark Souls and in Dark Souls 3, for at least one run each, I mained the Great Axe. But those games didn't really have decent giant hammers that were just big hammers. You also do that in Monster Hunter. Oh, yeah. I love the I love the hammer in Monster Hunter. You love hammers. It's great. You know who also loves hammers? Who? Joe and Anthony Russo. <laughs> what? Oh, th- they do. Have y'all recorded that episode yet? We recorded Infinity War. We talked about how Thor just needed a better hammer. We haven't talked about Avengers 4 and how Thor just needs two hammers. <laughs> lordy, lordy. The better hammer didn't work. What if he had two hammers? God. Still doesn't so- work. <laughs> It's it still literally didn't work. Did, how how did everybody end up coming down on that? Avengers three fucking sucks. Uh huh. It's probably the worst movie in the whole continuum. Yeah, yeah. How how did the others come down on it? Let's see. We got uh, D minus from me, a D mm-hmm. from Luke, and a B minus from AJ, a C from Ty. Damn. Those those are more positive than I would have thought on both those accounts. I thought that uh, Luke's would actually be a little bit more positive based on his reactions that he posted on Twitter. Because he was like, it was bad, but it wasn't like egregious. Here's, here's, nice to know that you stuck the same level. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's here's where that discussion went. Here's a preview for that episode. Okay. You might think that Infinity War has kind of muddled themes and doesn't really communicate them well. But actually, it does communicate its themes very well. They're just repugnant. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's, oh, I feel like we recorded an episode that came to this exact same fucking conclusion. God, that movie just makes me so mad all the time. Every time I think about it. What is, what a ridiculous movie to have poured a million billion dollars into. Emily also asks, what in your opinion is the best ending? Crystal, you and I have already answered this. Monica, what is the best ending? Um, I don't like any of them. No. No. Which is the least repugnant? None of them. Golly. Can I offer an alternate ending? Yes. You go to Lady Maria of the Astral Clock Tower. She does the attack on you where she, like, stabs you through the chest and then pulls you close to caress you. And then yes. you die. And then you turn off your PS4. <laughs> How? Uh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, there's also the extreme hard mode version of that ending which is where you're running around just doing shit and then your save gets corrupted and you start playing Hades. <laughs> hey, that's the best ending. There we go. Okay, that's my answer. 
Hades is a pretty good video game. It's very feel good. It's got a great story. It's got great voice lines. You should play some more of that at some point, Crystal. Yeah, I should play that. I own it. Well, I purchased it. You don't have to. You're under no obligation, of course. But I, I mean, think that I, you would I, like... I already purchased it. I should play it. Yeah, maybe. I think that outside of Zag, because Zag is easily the hottest guy in that cast, I think that your favorite boys will be either Dionysus or Theseus. I don't go for the Athenians. No? <laughs> <laughs> Just not an just not an Athenian liker. No, not not an Athens person. Let me look at. Oh, uh, well, Theseus is all right. Oh, now, you, Asterius. Now we're talking. Yeah, Asterius is for real though. But Asterius and Theseus's relationship is a big part of what makes them work. Theseus is such a dumbass jock. He's perfect. It's so good. He he's just trying to be a face in the arena all the time. And he never doesn't sell it. It's amazing. Okay. Um, how do I pronounce Stevie? Stevie? Stevie. Maybe. Maybe. Stevie, I'm sorry if I got your name wrong. But are the great ones really that great? They seem like they're stuck between bestial compulsion, being used by lesser beings, and being so knowledgeable about reality that they just stopped moving and sort of sit there. Well, if you think that the actual great ones are the little sluggos, Monica love little sluggos. Yeah, the little sluggos are the best part about Bloodborne. The what? second is Lady, Lady Maria. Really? She's pretty hot. Uh, she is hot, I suppose. Crystal, what's your take on this? Are the great ones really all that great, or are they kind of overhyped? Yeah, they're fine. They're just chilling. They're just, you know, beings. They don't have to yeah. do anything for you. They don't owe you anything. Just chilling. I think, that, I think that Mother Cause is definitely the coolest of them. She had a very personal and active relationship with her worshippers, made sure that their lives were good. That's the kind of god that you want, one who will show up. Not one that's constantly, like, (laughs) having sex, both consensual and non-consensual. Are we talking about Zeus again? No. Or are we talking about every other god in this game? Yeah, no, the one that keeps on impregnating people. Oh, the formless one. Yes. That motherfucker. Yeah, that's not good. Uh, I'm a big fan of the brain of Mensis. What is the brain of Mensis anyway? Where'd that co- like they found it in a nightmare? Yeah, it's just a big brain with eyeballs just chilling in the dark in the nightmare of Mensis. And if it sees you, it kills you with frenzy real good. Yeah, I mean it knows not to trust humans. I don't think that it's even trying to do it. It's just like, "Hey," and you're like, "Ah!" What's the name of the spider? Rom. Rom. Rom doesn't aggro. Yeah, Rom until just, you hit it. Rom's just chilling. Yeah. Rom is, I was a big proponent of not hitting things that don't try to hit you. Rom is crystal. Rom is a, a vacuous spider. Doesn't have a lot of thoughts. It's no Rom, thoughts. It's idiotic it. spider in Japanese. Head empty. Well, maybe you shouldn't hit it because it's not there to hit you. I agree. Then you'd be stuck in that lake forever. But I mean, it was also part of the whole deal at Bergenworth that did all that bad shit. So Rom's not... Rom's not good, but it doesn't have any memory of who it was before, so you're not exactly punishing it. Can a completely vacuous spider feel pain? It knows that it's being attacked, which I guess is the same thing. What's our next question? (laughs) Crystal. Uh, Any asks, do you think the hunter's experiences alter the nightmare where you fight Murgo's wet nurse? Huh. Do we think that the hunter's experiences are reflected in the world around them? What do you think, Crystal? Well, it's hard to say because the hunter doesn't really have you know, a backstory or a personality with which mm-hmm. we might register alterations. Right. 
And we don't see, like, different versions of the nightmare. That's true. So, in conclusion, it's hard to say. Yeah, it is hard to say. My my initial gut reaction is to say that the nightmare is determined by the person having the nightmare rather than people who wander into it like the hunter does, but it's hard to say. Solid maybe. And he also asks, what do you think of fake Yosefka? She sucks. She sucks and I hit her with a hammer and I didn't feel that bad about it. I felt a little bad, but I didn't feel that bad. Why would you feel bad about it? She She didn't know what was going on at that point. She needed a hammer to the face. She did. She's definitely one of the worst characters in that setting. What do you think, Crystal? What about, how do you feel about fake Yosefka? Not a fan of her. She's, uh, you might say she is uh, a, a neutral evil character. Yeah, she's just evil for evil evil. She's definitely uh, a member of the Healing Church after the Healing Church had mostly turned into like this big eugenics project. Yeah, yeah, the Healing Church is just a big eugenics project. Huh, this is not the appropriate time. What do you think of the blue mushroom person in the clinic with a human hand? Asks any. Blue mushroom person with a human hand. Now, the the, em- the celestial emissaries that run around in Yosefka's clinic are usually uh, people that the fake Yosefka has experimented on with blood. In this specific instance, I think any is referring to the actual Yosefka. And I feel bad for the actual Yosefka. She, she, she didn't do nothing but try to heal you through a door while keeping the door locked because who's going to trust this person who's running around just murdering people? How do we feel about the original Yosefka? She seems like she was trying her best. Yeah. I agree. Trying her best within a broken system. And then there was this really scary sound alike. The problem is the thing that she was going to heal you with is the thing that's the problem. Yeah. And maybe she didn't know. Maybe she's so far removed from everything from the genesis of all this bad stuff that like knowledge of the evil that she's perpetuating just isn't common anymore, but still there, still universal. And he asks once more, is Eileen the crew... The crow, the best hunter who deserves a break and to wake up. And why is the answer yes? She's got a cool outfit. She has a very cool outfit. Cool outfit, cool accent. Cool weapons that she bequeaths you. And I also think there's something to be said about her coming back when she doesn't have to, just so that things don't get worse. I respect that. I respect that even if it's not very useful. Hunter, hunter. Yeah, I love Eileen. Everyone loves Eileen. Ellen asks, obviously intended gameplay feel is part of lore, and experienced feel is part of lore interpretation. So what does it mean when the hunter feels like that after winning a fight? How does it play into themes surrounding the hunter and the hunt? Is it different in Dark Souls? The feeling when I slaughter the prey? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. Oh, I see. So is Ellen here suggesting that the relief and triumph that you feel after defeating a boss or something is reflected in the player character. Yeah, you, you become a, a bit of a beast when you're like, fuck, yes, fuck you, I slaughtered you. I think that that's an that's a extremely good alignment of player feeling and the themes of the game. Because by the time you get to the end of the game, your character as embodied through you is more and more monstrous, more and more unstoppable. And then the pale blood gets spilled, you know how it is. You're never completely apart from it, but you're also clearly not actually turning into a monster, which is why the hunter never turns irrevocably into a monster either, I guess. You're also encouraged in this game mechanically to just fucking hit him and not play defensively, but play offensively and keep hitting him to regain your health loss. 
Yeah, that works in almost all of them. Except for like the cursed watcher of the old lords. Not a that that one you can't be too aggressive on. Did you ever play through the Chalice Dungeons, Crystal? Yeah, I played through them. They're pretty tough, huh? They're not easy. That's why I summon help. Yeah, that would that that would help. I don't have the PSN online, which is also why I don't have a backup of my save. So, uh, yeah, the cursed watchdogs of the old lords was quite the difficult fight for me. In Dark Souls, they they try to get you to feel how a hollow feels because you just you just can't progress. You're just not making any progress. You just feel like giving up and being a hollow. It, you just kind of want to give up a little bit. Didge asks, or rather Ashley asks, Do you think your experience as a hunter is a nightmarish amalgamation of different time periods smushed together, or am I alone in this belief? I think that's a pretty cogent reading of Bloodborne. That makes sense why the timeline seems very difficult to discern. Yeah, I think that, like, most of Bloodborne is spent running around in people's dreams and nightmares and stuff, and those linger long after people are dead, so you're definitely running through the eras of a bunch of times slamming into each other. We definitely had a long discussion when you were playing about whether or not something was actually reflected in the real world. Yeah, even the what Crystal considers the best ending where you leave Yarnum includes a very strong sense of unreality to it because the doll is there in the quote-unquote waking world wishing you a good day. And that doesn't seem to be the kind of thing that would be reflected in the real world at all. You're still in the inception. I, I think that's very possible. The top is still spinning. Oh, wait, no, you you died. And Eileen died. And Gascoigne died. And it's just that they're still in the dream. They're all just still in the dream. Like Inception. Sh- sure. Can we not talk about Inception anymore? Okay. I don't want to talk about Chris Nolan movies anymore. I'm about sick of him. It's like I'm Paprika. Sick of- yeah, it's like Paprika. I've never watched Paprika. I should. I think I'm going to watch Princess Mononoke this weekend. That's a pretty good movie. Eh. I hope. No? Yeah, you know, visually a fine film. Yeah, visually a fine film. Not a big fan of it. Yeah, maybe not. Ah, uh, well, I remember having the same reaction to it when I watched it like 15 years ago. But I'm thinking maybe now my reaction will be a little bit different. Now, Palm Poco, that's a fucking movie. Oh yeah, that's the best Ghibli film. Wow, that's a strong recommendation. You want to talk about a visually fine movie from Ghibli that is thematically worrisome while also being very heartfelt for what it is if you want to watch something and go wow this is well made i have at best complicated feelings about it watch the wind rises because that is some shit is that's the one where miyazaki is meditating like man is making art even worth it did i waste my life there's a little bit of that in there there's also a little bit of a guy designing planes for imperial japan during world war ii also some of that some of the, it's it's an important part of the film, you could say. See, in Palm Poco, you just get the Tanukis doing fun magic with their big balls. I do love Tanukis doing fun and magic. And also with a meditation about how humanity is destroying nature. Oh, there's a lot of that. How about Porco Russo, where he may be a pig, but at least he's not a fascist? Porco Rosso, Por- good film. Porco Rosso, excellent for me. Like, I like that a lot. Uh, we did watch Nausicaa in the Valley of the Wind about a year ago. That was a good picture. That's a good. That's a good flick. That's a. I, I, generally speaking, that studio produces pretty good movies. Yeah, they make good talkies. Good talkies. We have questions in our email. Okay. Okay. Uh, Whistle asks, 
Fulfilling a request of Cameron's from Twitter. Thoughts on the player character becoming a squid in Bloodborne's special ending? Okay, all three of us, I think, have different uh, takes on this. So, Crystal, you go first. I mean, you know, I think you're you're going to do all right. I don't think you're going to solve anything. <laughs> okay, Monica. Sprinkle some salt on that slug. Why? I thought the slugs were your favorite characters. That ending is you becoming your favorite thing about the setting. Yeah, no, it's fine. <laughs> it's okay. Solid okay. Solid okay. That's you gotta a... wonder how it feels to be a slug. You ain't or a gotta, squid. You ain't gotta move much. I guess. You just chill out. And you eat lettuce. Yeah. You eat lettuce? Yeah, you eat lettuce for sure. It depends on if you're a squid or a slug. For if me, you're a squid, I guess you eat scallop? Sure. I don't know what squids eat. Fair enough. Um, I think that it's the best ending because it's you setting aside every part of who you were in order to try to fix things. It's like... The same way that Garman acted on a noble impulse, only hopefully you'll be able to change something by summoning the mists of demons to Yarnum and, I, you know, demon souls happens. It's taken care of. Okay, and now we've got one here from Casey. Greetings, Book of Medora crew. I don't know much about Bloodborne, aside from some cultural osmosis I've picked up. To whoever has actually played the game on the podcast, what is your favorite boss fight? If that has been answered already, I attempted to make a Bloodborne joke for you, but I don't know jack shit, so instead I will provide a link to a GameFAQs thread of Bloodborne jokes I don't understand. Hope you all have a good day, KCC. Thank How thoughtful. You. That was wonderful, Casey. You're officially the hero of the Bloodborne episode. Thank you. What's your favorite boss fight, Crystal? I like the human boss fights. I like Gasquan. I like Lady Maria. I like people I can parry. Yeah, those are strong. Monica, as a person who only watched some of them, what was your favorite of the boss fights? Uh, Ludwig had good music. Hmm. They all had pretty good music. They all had pretty good music. Orally, a fine game. Um, That guy who is on the rooftop that you died to a whole bunch. That motherfucker? He's not a boss. <laughs> that, uh, was he not a boss? No, that's... that's what was his name? Jarn? Jura? Gas, Jura, Gascoigne's old partner? Wait, no, I killed him with Eileen, right? Or something. No, he had the crown on. The guy with the crown on. Oh. Oh. Logarius, the martyr. I only died to him like four or five times. Come on. That motherfucker, I hate him so much. <laughs> what a run. The worst part of that is the boss run to Logarius is a pain in the ass. You're grumbling the whole time. And then they shoot you on the ladder and then you fall off the ladder. Oh my god. That happened like twice. Crystal, did you ever have any problems with the boss run to Ligarius? No, because I just summon people for help. You're always doing the smart thing, Crystal. <laughs> You're always doing the smart thing. I think that my favorite boss fight in the game is probably Lady Maria. Yeah, that's probably my my actual answer. And like and this is a little bit different from Dark Souls, because in Dark Souls games, there's always at least one giant boss that makes you go, hell yeah, look at this. In the first game, you got Manus. In Dark Souls 3, you had um, Dark Eater Medir, who I absolutely adore. In this game, it was like all human-sized bosses. They were really trying to capture that Artorias feel a lot, and succeeding for the most part. So yeah, I, I guess Maria. Maria would be the one. I think we've reached the end of the questions. Oh, actually, there's one more from Alex. Oh, What's Bloodborne the Dark Souls of? I am absolutely... It's the Dark Souls of uh, the BBC Sherlock series. What? Yeah. Oh. Explain. Huh? Elaborate, please. <laughs> <laughs> 
okay, say you take um, Legend of Zelda and you make it into and put it through a process that produces Dark Souls. You take the BBC Sherlock series and put it through the same process and Bloodborne comes out. It's got all the same imperialism. It's got all the same British people. It's got werewolves. All we're missing is somebody talking about the hound while being super high. Oh, yeah, that did happen. That did fucking happen, didn't it? That does make sense, actually, now that you explain it. There's mind palaces. <laughs> yeah, there's mind palaces, just like Sherlock. <laughs> just like in Sherlock. God, I haven't watched that show since, like, the fourth episode. But that seemed like the pithiest answer I could throw out. What What, what is Bloodborne the Dark Souls of to you, Crystal? Uh, well... Bloodborne is uh, Demon Souls 1.8. So I. So Bloodborne is the Dark Souls of Dark Souls. Dark Souls is Demon Souls 1.2. So uh, 1.8 divided by 1.2 uh, is uh, 1.5. <laughs> so Bloodborne is Dark Souls 1.5. Okay. Yeah. It's the Dark Souls of 1.5. I'm glad that we've come to the to the mathematically correct answer to this question. Bloodborne is the Dark Souls of 1.5. I'm glad they finally made a sequel to Demon Souls last year. I'm glad... Th- wait, wait, was that Sekiro? Yeah. Okay. Was that only 2019? Yeah. Man, I guess it was early 2019. That feels like it came out two or three years ago. That's this year is that's never ending. Two- <laughs> yeah. Much like the night. Oh, that's right. It was. It, it is still almost two years, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. People like to joke about how 2020 has been very long, and it's like years are very long, but 2020 has felt very long, even if the days are going fast. Anyway, are we about finished? I think that's the podcast right there. Okay. I, I, I apologize to our listeners that we didn't present this in a way more similar to our Zelda episodes, but Bloodborne's story isn't like a Zelda game story, not even a Breath of the Wild Zelda game, and presenting it linearly wouldn't have made any fucking sense. They tried linearly. Well, it mostly went okay. As you experience it. Oh, that way. That wouldn't have yeah, made no. any sense. Like we did like we did with Skyward Sword. In yeah, conclusion. but with Breath of the Wild we went. <laughs> In conclusion. Uh, go on, Monica. Oh, for Breath of the Wild we went chronologically, historically. Yeah, but we don't want to spend seven hours on Bloodborne. No, but Crystal, go ahead. In conclusion, the theme of Bloodborne. Oh, uterus. <laughs> That's about right. That's about right. Oh, God. Let's end it. Let's end this on a, a funny Bloodborne joke. Okay. Before we do that, though, Crystal, where can we find you on the internet? Oh, Twitter.com slash Arcane Crystal, Patreon.com slash Arcane Crystal, on various audio entropy podcasts such as uh, Eidolon Playtest, an actual play RPG podcast based on JoJo's and Persona. Uh, Let's Place, the, the podcast where you scientifically objectively rank every video game according to quality. And MCU Complete Me, where we watch the Marvel movies and decide if they're good or bad. The last one was pretty bad. Last one wasn't good. And you can find me on Twitter at Cam Ryder. If you have any questions that you'd like to send into the podcast, preferably about Zelda, feel free to send them to bookofmedorapodcast at gmail.com. Once more, bookofmedorapodcast at gmail.com. We'll get to Age of Calamity eventually. Yeah. Yeah. This joke comes this joke comes from user Ramsey Bolton six oh eight. Uh, oh Lord the uh, Game Fox 
Bloodborne forums. Why does the Tumerian queen knit hunters in her free time? I, oh, is this a knitting joke? Yeah, it's a Monica, bright, Monica brightened up so much. If you can't beat them, yarn them. Not bad. Oh, <laughs> disgusting. I think we could work this into something more knit. More knitting. Knitting friendly. Oh, what if it was a, a Bloodborne's woolly world where everything is just yarn? Sure. All right, goodbye, everybody. Bye. Goodbye.